Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 84. Walden by Henry David Thoreau. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read. We determine whether or not it is required reading. As always, I am your host, Tom Panneries, and my co-host who is sitting here on this beautiful pond on a beautiful fall day watching the birds and all of taking in all of nature with me as somebody who is actually a really good companion when you just want to take in nature. If you listened to episode um, 70, I believe Yeah, and that's Stella. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. I would say that you and I, cause we've had of course discussions about what person we would want to take on a hike. Would we, the two of us be able to survive like a long distance hike Mm -hmm. and i think we are that like the friends that thoreau talks about in in there of um society and that he does you know he has like three chairs out ready to go but he doesn't like feel it a burden or he doesn't he he considers it like distinct from actually his solitude like it doesn't impede on it i feel like it is that way like we can just hang out and like we could read together or do something like that. So I, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and unfortunately I just witnessed a really intense ant battle and had to do some, uh, some medics and save some <laughs> ants. <lives. laughs> so, but here, here I am with some viscera on me after trying oh, to save fun. some black ants, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. Good. You know what I saw recently on my back deck? I'm sitting eating breakfast and drinking coffee one morning, as you do, and I hear this squealing and a neighborhood cat, because we have like three neighborhood cats who just kind of hang out all around the cul-de-sac and like they'll be up on my porch and stuff and I don't mind, is attacking a squirrel. (laughs) And I watch this cat and this squirrel just fight it out on my back deck before the squirrel (laughs) finally, yeah, the cat and the squirrel pinned. I was like, oh my gosh. So you got we both we both have uh, have seen the, the the raw side of nature. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I, you know what? The, there's something about there's something to be said about being friends and being able to um, 
be together in a place with periods of silence that don't need to be filled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, and, and I think that, I think we're definitely in that sort of, I don't even know, realm, <laughs> if you would yeah. call it and such like, you know, um, we're not ignoring each other. It's just sort of, you know, you can, you can take in solitude with, or, or that sort of that quiet with somebody else. And I think that's a really, really valuable thing to have in a friendship. So really absolutely. Nice. Yeah. So we are, <clears throat> we're talking about solitude. We're talking about thorough there, by the way, there, there is a, uh, long running debate on how to pronounce this guy's name. So, cause I, my English professor in college where, um, was, uh, like I took a survey of English American, sorry, survey of American literature course that covered like, um, like the, the discovery, so to speak, all the way up until I think the mid roughly like right around the civil war or, or right before restoration. Um, and, uh, she used thorough. So I've always, that's what I've said, but Thoreau is another pronunciation that I've heard as well. And I'm like, mm. whatever, either one, uh, it's good. So it's, it's kind of one of those little, little interesting things, but we are talking about Walden, um, which was, uh, it's, you know, published like written in, in about 1845 or so and published soon after is kind of a mainstay on a lot of American lit survey courses. And before we get into the plot synopsis and the history of the author, it's the thing we like to talk about our origin stories with this book. So Stella, what is your experience with Walden? Yeah, my experience with Walden is skimming it in 10th grade in order to write a paper. What the paper <laughs> I also think I may have needed assistance from my mother to help me out. Um, what the paper was on, I'm not sure. I wonder if it was on transcendentalism Probably. or some such. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I know the books and the poetry that we read and the play that we read in 10th grade English, but I'm not sure how it would have connected. I'm not sure which one we chose. So when you, <laughs> when you <laughs> chose this, I was not looking forward to it, Tom, because I'm like, oh, man, that was a hard skim for me in 10th grade. So I don't know what it's going to be like now. So that's my history. All right. Um, mine's a little bit more complex. I bet. Um, I first heard of Walden back in like high school or something through like a – there was like a campaign – there was a campaign to save that area of Walden pond or something like a conservationist effort. I remember Don Henley from the Eagles was like one of the celebrities that you'd see on like commercials for it or something. So that's where I found out what Walden was. I must've been in like the 10th, ninth or 10th grade or something. I didn't read it until college um, <clears throat> in that survey course, survey of American literature, uh, because we worked our way, you know, we started with, you know, um, the Puritans and worked our way. So like we read, um, what the heck's the name of that sermon, like sinners in the hands of an angry God or something like that. And oh. yeah, worked our way through the, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the colonial texts. We read Washington Irving. We would read Melville and Hawthorne and Poe and like, you know, all of the, everybody up until, like I said, about, I think about 1865. And then everything that was, this, there was a second survey course that covered after that. And, 
I ended up taking the English literature one that was 19th century English literature. Now you know my, why I have this, such a disdain for that particular period. <laughs> but I digress. Um, so we worked our way f- from Emerson to Thoreau through transcendentalism and then the anti-transcendentalists and stuff and the various movements in um, literature. And so I, the first time I read this, I read it in um, – I think I read it in like a Norton anthology. So it was like tiny type on onion skin pages, you know? Um, and then at one point I'm at one point I did own a copy um, in, in paperback. I don't know what happened to it. And then uh, a number of years later, that's your history with all these books, Tom. Yeah. You lend it to somebody and they don't give it back. to I you. I may have actually given it away in a, in oh, okay. books before a move. <laughs> like every time we've moved, well, you know, back in the day before we were like kind of home in the, in the depths of home ownership, you know, where you move a little bit less frequently, um, you know, we change apartments and um, we'd always like call books and things like that. So I probably went the, by the wayside, either that or I sold it either that I had it in college. I sold it back at the end of a semester. <laughs> So years later, I was teaching English and um, was teaching 11th grade English and did not do an excerpt from this. I think we used an excerpt from in the course. I think I'd used an excerpt from Civil Disobedience. But I was like, I should reread this because I remember having mixed feelings about it when I first read it in college. But that was during a semester where I was reading like how much am I was I reading at the same time that there's only so much I can remember from like what I read in college because of it. And so um, I reread it and I just like kind of, again, was, this was in my twenties and stuff. So I was like, um, you know, kind of interested and it had mixed feelings again. So it came around this time mainly because I've had a, at some point in the last several years, I downloaded a copy through Amazon uh, their Amazon Essentials collection. And I probably got it for really, really cheap or free. And it's been sitting on my Kindle app for years. And I was like, well, it's fall. This is kind of seasonal in a sense, at least in my mind. Let's do this. Um, so I read this as an Amazon ebook. And I will talk a little bit about that experience when we get to the did you like this part? I know. That was some yeah. hypocrisy right yeah, there. Yeah, I, I know, think. right? So, um, so yeah. So, so yeah, those are, although what's interesting is that, um, I, uh, my parents for years, for like 30 years have been vacationing on a lake in New Hampshire every summer. So, and, um, you know, I was, I would go with them for the first up until that time I was about 17. And, uh, I, you know, by the, when I was a teenager it was boring as hell, but when I was younger, I really liked it. And, now I'm like, I can totally see the appeal. You know, it, it's, it's kind of this nice thing. And, and so the, the, there is an appeal to this whole experience of just going and living on a lake and being very simple as opposed to like the rat race. In fact, I think last week I texted you or emailed you and said, let's just say that ditching everything to go live in a cabin in the woods is looking really appealing right now. So it's been on my mind. Oh, yeah. Anyway. All right. So let's talk about our author because he is an extremely important author and voice in American literature in the 19th century. And I'd say in the history of American literature, 
The information I have for this, I want to cite my sources. It's taken from the Beacon Press Teacher's Guide to uh, Walden. Basically, I was looking for information beyond Wikipedia about Thoreau and things like that and some possible questions for a study guide. And I found this. Um, the guide was written by Richard J. Schneider from Wartburg College. I'm not reading all of it verbatim. I have cribbed a lot of it, and I'm just going to kind of walk us through both the life of Henry David Thoreau as well as his experience in writing uh, writing the book Walden. And I will note that when you buy a copy of Walden, you also usually get the essay Civil Disobedience, which is his other very, very famous work. They tend to package them together in one in one volume. Um, we are not discussing civil disobedience on this particular uh, podcast episode. We're just sticking with the main text, Walden. I would recommend reading that essay, though. It is very much in the spirit of defining that whole term of civil disobedience, and it's very much in the, in the term of what the First Amendment says, uh, the right to petition, petition the government for the redress of grievances, you know, the idea of standing up for what you believe in, et cetera, et cetera. Even though you were, at, we, you and I were exchanging emails this morning, he spent the night in jail for paying a poll tax, for not refusing to pay a poll tax. And he'd been not paying it for years and years and years and years. Um, poll taxes, by the way, were taxes that people put on elections locally. And very often those were used to, especially after the Civil War, when we have the uh, 15th Amendment, a lot of those, and in addition to literacy tests and other things, were used to prevent um, black uh, Americans from voting. Uh, but he spent this night in jail, and he just came out with this essay and this feeling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he was uh, a staunch abolitionist, and actually there are stories about his family's house being a stop on the Underground Railroad. And him and his family helping uh, runaway enslaved people escape to other parts of the country as well as Canada. So I, th I found that fascinating. So Henry David Thoreau was born in 1817. He uh, died in 1862. And so right in the middle of the Civil War, he lived during a time in America's history, which was kind of like the beginning of the uh, very, very beginning of the what would be the Industrial Revolution in our country. Now, the Industrial Revolution over in Europe took place, I think we're about like a good 50 to 100 years behind. I, forgive me, my European and American history courses were many, many years ago. But this was around the time where the railroad was coming through. And he mentions the railroad several times over in Walden. So I wanted to make, point that out. But he lived his nearly his entire life in uh Concord, Massachusetts, which is, of course, the site of one of the first battles of the Revolutionary War, about um, 50 years or so before he was born. And Concord, by the way, is a small town that's about 20 miles west of Boston. So uh, I mentioned the fact that the railroad chugged by Walden Pond it is mentioned several times over the book. And the railroad meant that Concord merchants could extend their buying beyond selling more easily beyond the bounds of town. Farmers could shift from growing subsistence crops to growing cash crops to be sold to distant markets. It also meant that farmers could make extra money off of selling the 
would launch for fireworks, firewood to keep Bostonians warm. And, um, that's what Thoreau assisted a lot of them because one of his professions was as a surveyor. Thoreau understood early in America's history how dependent industrialization was on the ex- exploitation of cheap labor. Uh, this exploitation was the most obvious in the use of slavery to pick cotton in the South. And I mentioned that he was a, uh, part, his house, the family house was used for the under, the underground railroad road. He also witnessed and read about exploitation of the Irish and Chinese laborers to build the railroads because you remember as they were building railroads in the East, they were hiring Irish immigrants who would come up over here, especially during the 1840s when you had the great potato famine. And then in the West where, um, you had the, uh, immigration of a lot of Chinese uh, into like uh, San Francisco and the Pacific Northwest throughout this, this time as well. He himself experienced it, although more benignly, because he worked in his father's pencil factory. It's like, yeah. Thoreau received his education at public school in Concord and at the private Concord Academy, proving to be a better scholar than his more fun-loving and popular elder brother, John. He was sent to Harvard. He did well there, and despite having to drop out for several months for financial and health reasons, was graduated in the top half of his class in 1837. He and John started a school after he returned from Harvard, but John got sick in 1841, and I believe it was like tetanus uh, or something, and he eventually would die of that. Uh, the school became too much for Henry to handle alone, so he closed it, and he returned to work at the pencil factory, but was soon invited to work as a live-in handyman in the home of his mentor, neighbor, and friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Ralph Waldo Emerson is another big luminary name in American literature, especially this time. In fact, by then he was already one of the most famous American philosophers and men of letters. Since Thoreau's graduation from Harvard, he'd become a protege of Emerson and an informal student of Emerson's transcendental ideas. Now, transcendentalism as a philosophy is essentially an American version of romanticism. Now, romanticism is... Uh, we're talking about the early 1800s in England. We're talking Wordsworth and Coleridge and Shelley, both Shelleys, Byron, etc. And the idea of eschewing in the industrialized city to go back to nature and find the beauty in nature and the beauty of emotion as opposed to the rational, the practical. So this transcendentalism has its origins in the romantic idealism this what they did though is they created sort of um as this interest as a dualistic neoplatonic view of the world divided into the material and the spiritual and for emerson mind is the only reality of which other natures are better or worse reflectors nature literature history are only subjective phenomena for the transcendentalist the secret of successful living was to hold oneself above material concerns such as poss- as much as possible and focus on the spiritual. Emerson, I remember talking about sort of the invisible third eye, the creative eye, and things like that, and that you see beyond just the material world. It is a little bit hippie, but um, I did kind of get it back then. I, I understood what he was talking about, because when, when, I had to read a couple of his essays as well. Is this still a movement, would you say? Not in the way it was like maybe a hundred, like 200 years ago, but um, I would imagine that there's some people who subscribe to this or try to write within its boundaries, maybe. 
I'm at a loss for who that would be, or maybe has morphed into where some of the ideals have been used here and there. I know I have at least one, one or two questions about that, as well as it's the Venn diagram overlapping with uh, religion as well. Cause there is a, there's a, like a quasi religious component to it. If you really think about it. So we'll, we'll get there. Okay. So during his stay with Emerson, Thoreau had ambitions to become a writer. He received help from Emerson in getting some poems and essays published in the transcendental journal called the dial. By 1843, he and Emerson decided it might be good to establish context with publishers in New York, so Emerson arranged a job for him as a tutor to the children of his brother, William Emerson, on Staten Island. Um, Thoreau, however, quickly found both the teaching situation and the urban environment intolerable, which is true, Staten Island is very intolerable, and returned again to his parents' home in Concord to work again in the pencil factory. In 1845, he received permission from Emerson to use a piece of land that Emerson owned on the shore of Walden Pond. He bought building supplies and a chicken coop for the boards and built himself a small cabin there, moving in on the 4th of July. His main purpose in moving to the pond were to write his first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, as a tribute to his brother John, who had passed away by then, and to conduct an economic experiment to see if it were possible to live by working one day and devoting the other six to more transcendental concerns, thus reversing the Yankee habit of working six days and resting on one, which, of course, comes from just the morally Jewish tradition of the Sabbath, you know, having that one day where you do not, you do not work because it goes all, you know, it goes all the way back, back to like Moses. His nature study and the writing of Walden would develop later during the stay at the pond. He began writing Walden in 1846 as a lecture in response to the questions of township people who were curious about what he was doing out there soon grew into his second book. He was in the cabin at Walden for two years, from July 1845 to September of 1847. He really only writes about one year in the entire book. At the very, very end of the book, he basically says there was a second year there, but it was pretty much the same as the first. And he left Walden Pond at the end of eight, in 1847. Um, so it was just kind of like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> um, he leaves out or rather alludes to only briefly a few things. His famous night in jail, from which we get the essay Civil Disobedience, that was in 1846. He also took a trip to Maine that same year to climb Mount Katahdin, which is a place with much wilder nature that he could find around Concord. And if Mount Katahdin sounds familiar, and I'm mispronouncing it terribly, it's because that is the northernmost endpoint of the Appalachian Trail in modern day. So it was mentioned more than once in A Walk in the Woods. So we're crossover. Yeah. Thoreau would only live 15 years after leaving Walden Pond. He published two books. Walden was one, then that week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. It, that sold poorly, so he held off publication of Walden so he could revise it. Walden was a modest success when it appeared. It brought him good reviews, satisfactory sales, and a small following of fans. After the Walden Pond years, Thoreau lived again in the Emerson home until 1849, while Emerson was on a lecture tour in Europe. And then he rented a room in his parents' home on Main Street. He also took a series of trips to the Maine woods and to Cape Cod, which provided material for travel essays published first in journals and eventually collected into posthumous books. Other excursions took him to Canada and near the life of, end of his life, Minnesota. He died in his parents' home in 1862 
of tuberculosis. He had been apparently plagued with it periodically since his years at Harvard. He left behind large unfinished projects, including a comprehensive record of natural phenomena around Concord and extensive notes on American Indians, but these promised neither the artistic unity nor the intensity of Walden. So, all right. So that's our author. It does. I wanted to make sure that I got a little bit extensive in the bio because this is a work of nonfiction. So it is him reflecting on an experience that he actually had. So just knowing the circumstances of who this person was and how they got into the business of being on Walden Pond, I think is very, uh, very useful for what we're discussing today. Would you consider it a memoir? Um, I think to a certain extent, yeah, but I think it's also like a work of philosophy as well. Mm-hmm. It's like the memoir informs the philosophy. What do you think? Hmm. Uh, I agree with you that I think it's a work of philosophy. Yeah. Um, well, I guess because we kind of decided that memoirs are like a sh- snapshot of somebody's yeah. life. So it does... I think follow that since it's just his two years there. Yeah, and even then he condenses the experience into one. Yeah, though it does it doesn't talk about him. Yeah, it's almost like a you know himself too much. Yeah, it's, like if we were to do a pie chart about what you know yeah. neighbors, Thoreau, yeah. nature, like uh, nature outweighs it, the the whole or building. I it's guess it's almost so, like a philosophical yeah. narrative. Mm. In a sense, right? Yeah. So, because he's not doing philosophy the way that, like, Aristotle does philosophy and Nicomachean ethics, or Plato does philosophy through dialogues in the Republic, or any of the other works that he did, or the way that, like, Nietzsche or anybody else do these books that are essentially lectures, right? This is lectury in places. But it's also got a story to it, so that that's this that makes it a little bit more unique than some of the others. So I have cribbed this from Wikipedia, and I do they at the very beginning of their plot synopsis they they quote which is probably the most famous quote of the book, and I am going to read it verbatim. It is long, so just bear with me. But I think it gives you the essence of what we're talking about here. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what I had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life, living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation, unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all of what was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world? Or if it were sublime to know it by experience, and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. So again, that's probably the most famous quote that comes from Walden, and it really does sum up at least his, it's a statement of purpose, 
or so. So part memoir and part spiritual quest, Walden opens with the announcement that Thor spent two years at Walden Pond, living a simple life without support of any kind. Uh, readers are reminded that at the time of publication, he's back to living among the civilized again. So this is a retrospective. And it's specific, separate and specific chapters. Each of them has specific themes and focuses on a specific topic. Uh, the first one is economy. It is the first and longest of the chapters. He outlines, he outlines the project. He talks about exactly what he built. He gives where he got his supplies and exactly accounts for it. There's an actual like, like ledger of his purchases um, in this section. In where I lived and what I lived for, he recollects through th- thoughts of places he stayed b- before selecting Walden Pond and takes to the woods, dreaming of an existence free of obligations and full of leisure. He announces that he resides far from social relationships and that mail represents or the post office and the majority of the chapter focuses on his thoughts while constructing a living at his new home. Chapter three is reading. He discusses the benefits of classical literature, preferably in the original Greek or Latin. Oh, are you going to be okay? He he loves the original Latin. No, he certainly does. Yeah. Yeah, He has that, uh, the Iliad out on his old table though, got stolen. So, um, I have the Iliad. I'm looking right at it. The new copy? Yes, I got I, I Did, pre-ordered oh. the Emily Wilson Iliad. I'm like pre-ordered. Yeah, I'm like, Friends, this is big because Tom hates I the hated Iliad. the Iliad when I was in college, but I Ooh. love love Emily Wilson's Odyssey translation. I was like, she's doing the Iliad. I will give this a try. So I, I, it's, well, it's well, right next well. to my Emily Wilson Odyssey there. Two or three books down, because my bookshelf is completely organized right now, is the Fagel's Odyssey, and next to that is the Fagel's Aeneid. So, Whoa. Yeah. Look at you. You're becoming a secret classicist. <laughs> I don't know if I have my copy of Plato's Republic anymore. I think I, I think I gave that away years ago. I know a lot of the philosophy books that I did. Gave it away. Yeah, I know I did. I Someone borrowed it and didn't return. Yeah, probably that, too. Anyway, he bemoans a lack of sophistication and concrete evidence of the popularity of unsophisticated literature. He also loved to read books by world travelers. He yearns for a time when each New England village supports, quote, wise men to educate and thereby ennoble the population. In sounds, he encourages the reader to be forever on the alert and looking always at what is to be seen. He says, although truth can be found in literature, it can be equally found in nature. And developing one's perceptiveness can alleviate boredom. He says that rather than look abroad for amusement to society in the theater, he says, like, you know, kind of dull pastimes, like how host work and things, these become amusement that never ceases to be novel. Likewise, he obtains pleasure in the sounds that ring around his cabin. Church bells ringing, carriages rattling and rumbling, cows lowing, whippoorwills singing, owls hooting, frogs croaking, and cockerels crowing. All sound heard at the greatest possible distance, he contends, produces one and the same effect. Then we get into solitude. He reflects on the feeling of solitude. He explains how loneliness can occur even amid companions if one heart is not open to them. He meditates on the pleasures of escaping society and the petty things that society entails, such as gossip and fights. He also reflects on his new companion, an old settler who arrives nearby, and an old woman with great memory. She says that memory runs back, or he says that memory runs back farther than mythology. 
He repeatedly reflects, reflects on the benefits of nature and of his deep communion with it. States that only the only medicine he needs is a dra- draft of morning air. In Visitors, he talks about how he enjoys companionship despite his love for solitude. He always has three chairs ready for vi- visitors. The entire It's like one for him, one for his friend, and then one for society, if I'm remembering the... Remembering it correctly, so he focuses on the coming of going of visitors. He has more comers in Walden than he did in the city, uh, which is kind of ironic considering how big, you know, how full the city is. He receives visits from those living or working nearby, but he gives special attention to the French Canadian-born woodsman named Alec Terrien. Unlike Thoreau, Terrien cannot read or write and is described as leading an animal life. He compares him to Walden Pond himself and then reflects on the women and children who seem to enjoy the pond more than men and how men are limited because their lives are taken up. The bean field is a reflection on Thoreau's planting and his enjoyment of this new job or hobby. He touches upon the enjoyment, the joys of his environment, the sights and sounds of nature, but also the military sounds nearby. The rest of the chapter focuses on its earnings and cultivation of crops. This is where there's like another ledger of what he bought. The old joke used to be like, yes, congratulations, you bought beans or peas or whatever. (laughs) He would sell them so he could buy like rice or something. It was was his way of sustaining money to to be able to afford to, to live when he needed to. The village focuses on his reflections of the journeys he takes several times a week into Concord, where he gathers the latest gossip and meets with townsmen. One one of his journeys to Concord, he's detained in jail for his refusal to pay a poll tax to the, quote, state that buys and sells men, women, and children like cattle at the door of its Senate house. And like I said, if you want to learn more about that or his reaction to it, his essay, Civil Disobedience, was what he wrote in response to his night in jail. So um, check that out. We have the ponds where we go to autumn. He discusses the countryside and writes down his observations about the geography of Walden Pond and its neighbors, Flint Pond, White Pond, and Goose Pond. Um, His favorites are Walden and White Ponds, which he describes lovelier than diamonds. Baker Farm is the next chapter after that. Um, He goes into the woods. He gets caught in a rainstorm and takes shelter in a dirty, dismal hut of a man named John Field, who is penniless but a hardworking Irish farmhand. He lives there with his wife and children. Thoreau urges Field to live a simple but independent and fulfilling life in the woods, therefore freeing himself of employers and creditors. But the Irishman will not give up his aspirations of luxury in the quest for the American dream. In Higher Laws, Thoreau discusses whether hunting and wild animals and meeting eat is necessary. Uh, he concludes that the primitive carnal sensuality of humans drives them to kill and eat animals, and that a person who transcends this propensity is superior to those who cannot, although he does occasionally eat meat that he catches. Um, in a t- addition to vegetarianism, he lauds chastity, boo, work, and teetotalism, also boo. Um, he also recognizes that Native Americans need to hunt and kill moose for survival. Moose, really? No, I get it. I know, I'm sorry. In the Maine woods, he eats, and he actually eats moose on a trip to Maine. Um, but here's the list of laws that he mentions. One must love that of the wild just as much as one loves that of the good. What men already know instinctively is true humanity. The hunter is the greatest friend of the animal which is hunted. No human older than an adolescent would wantonly murder any creature which reveres its own life as much as the killer. 
If the day and night make one joyful, one is successful. The highest form of self-restraint is when one can subsist not on other animals, but of plants and crops cultivated from the earth. Brute Neighbors is a simplified version of one of Thoreau's conversations with William Ellery Channing, who sometimes accompanied Thoreau on fishing trips when Channing had come up from Concord. And then the chapter also mentions Thoreau's interaction with a mouse that he lives with, the scene in which an ant battles a smaller ant, just like Stella saw this evening, and his frequent encounters with cats. No word on whether or not the cats were wrestling squirrels. Housewarming. After picking November berries in the woods, Thoreau adds a chimney and finally plasters the walls of his sturdy house to starve off, to stave off the cold of the oncoming winter. He also lays in a good supply of firewood and expresses affection for wood and fire. In former inhabitants and winter visits, he tells the stories of people who formerly lived in the vicinity of Walden Pond. And then he talks about a few of the visitors he receives during winter. Winter animals. Thoreau amuses himself by watching wildlife through the winter. He relates his observations of owls, hares, red squirrels, mice, and various birds. They hunt, sing, and eat the scraps and corn he put out for them. And he also describes a fox hunt that passes by. The pond in winter describes Walden Pond as it appears during the winter, of course. He says that he has sounded its depths and located an underground outlet. Then he recalls how 100 laborers came to cut great blocks of ice from the pond to be shipped to the Carolinas. The penultimate chapter is spring. As spring arrives, Walden and other ponds melt with powerful thundering and rumbling. He enjoys watching the thaw and grows ecstatic as he witnesses the green rebirth of nature. He watches the geese winging their way north and a hawk playing by itself in the sky. As nature is reborn, the narrator implies so is he. And then there is conclusion. In the final chapter, Thoreau criticizes conformity. If, man, if a man does not keep pace with his companions, he says, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. By doing so, men might find happiness and self-fulfillment. And he says, I do not say that John or Jonathan will realize all this, but such is the character of that morrow which mere lapse of time can never make to dawn. The light which puts out your eyes... Our eyes is darkness to us. Uh, only that day dawns to which we are awake. There is more day to dawn. The sun is but a morning star. Um, so, and then of course he he mentions that he spent a year after his what he has detailed that it was pretty much like the same year. And then he notes that he leaves in uh, September of 1847, and that's the end of his uh, sojourn at Walden Pond and his thoughts on it. So, um, before we get to our discussion of it, did you like this? Tom, I'm going to ask that you go first with this question. Oh, crap. (laughs) I just want to hear what you have to say. I, it's actually difficult. So, oh, (laughs) I, I heard your chair creak. Did you like lean back and give like a professor pose? No, I just adjusted. Um, <laughs> I liked, I liked it more than I did when I was in my twenties and okay. maybe it's a midlife crisis thing or what, I don't know, Thank but I, I found, I found a lot of what he was saying really interesting. I agreed with some of it, didn't agree with some of it, you know, but I, I found the exploration of the woods and things like really fascinating and, and kind of comforting in a sense, but at the same time, it's really tedious. 
in a lot of places. And this was, I, I don't know why I thought, I don't know why for some reason in my head, this was easier to read than it actually ended up being. This was kind of difficult to get through at times. I was like, Oh, this will be a breeze. I can read through this. And I was just like, when is this book going to end? The other thing is that I will say this, this doesn't work as an ebook. I wanted to, like, I kept highlighting things, and I was like, I really wish I had a paper copy in front of me so I can write in the margins and things like that and really interact with this book. You can kind of do that on an ebook, but it's kind of a pain in the, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm old and I'm not used to doing it, but it's kind of a pain in the ass to do it. I would have enjoyed this as an audiobook too. I would have been curious to what this sounds like if you have a good narrator on an audiobook version of, of Walden, but I do not recommend reading this as an ebook. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's kind of, it's still kind of mixed, although I lean a little more forward to the, I did kind of like it and I understand its presence in the, this is one of the like foundational works of American literature and philosophy. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear you say this because when you recommended, well, well I mean, chose when you this. chose this last month, and I was flabbergasted, to, to be honest, me. and I knew <laughs> I was not going to have a good time of it. And you're like, oh, I read it. I asked if you had read it before, and you're like, oh, yeah, two times. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then I started reading it. And I was struggling. I thought maybe this is my Don Quixote where Tom finds it really easy and I'm just struggling. Like, remember how I was like, oh, Don Quixote was so easy. And you're like, I was on the spark note. So I thought, oh, this is my Don Quixote. Uh, but I'm glad to hear that you had because there were like uh, sections that I had to reread mm -hmm. to understand what he was saying. Um, I will say that from this, I came up with another idea for a specials <laughs> episode, which I have put in uh, just to examine, I guess this is a tease, who knows where I'm going to do it, but to examine the evolution of novels and language through the decades. Mm. Um, and I have an idea of how we can do that because just saying that's that is cool like, that, no, no, but. That seems huge, that but like, just like, like pick chapters from different books um, throughout the decades and compare. Because like one chapter would not be bad, but just like picking anything. But and because I was thinking about this, like reading, I usually read like an hour a day and I can get through like 50 pages. Mm -hmm. And it was taking like twice that yeah. long. I mean, it was taking me an hour to get through like 25 pages. And so I was considering language and like how... I don't know, like depreciated like words are now maybe or, or just because how can I speed through current novels and I'm like shored up on this and and Dickens and things like that. So I was pondering that. But I would agree with you that I think it's I have a very complex relationship with this. Obviously, last time I skimmed it mm -hmm. and I was in 10th grade. So it's not like a good litmus to compare it to. Um, I was. <sighs> It what it kind of felt like you know the the section in 1984 oh, where book. it goes through the manifesto because it was just heavy sometimes but there were like really beautiful moments of him describing nature and of course I do like you know like Jane Eyre I really love it because of how descriptive it is um, so it was it's hard to say it's like 
enjoyable, um, but I think I realize why it is held up. Um, I agree with you that there are things that I agree with him on and things that I don't. I think he was a snob. I think we need to talk about his view of poverty. I don't know if that's um, one of your your questions or not. Um, So it's like, I don't know that I can say yes or no. It's like, uh, you know, kind of in between. It depended on what section I was reading and whether or not I was enjoying it or not. But it's not it's not an easy read. No. And I will completely agree with you where there's I mean, he's pretentious in places, too. Right. (laughs) Well, and there's a reading level aspect to this in a lot of older literature. And I, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really. I'm going to put a pin in that episode idea too because it's like that's really interesting. We could really do a, a, a kind of a deep dive into that whole idea of how yeah. language has evolved. There were parts of this. The, the beautiful descriptions of nature is one of them. There are also parts of this in more philosophical things, where like you did, like I did highlight something, and I did want to think about it for a little bit and savor it for a little bit, like really contemplate it what he was talking mm-hmm. about, especially that first chapter of economy, because he is laying out, he is essentially laying out like economic philosophy and I'm not an economist. Um, and if I, if I say his name three times, I think Alan's going to show up, but um, oh. no, but I'm not, I'm not that, but at the same time I'm seeing, uh, and, and one of my early questions here is about that chapter. So like, I'm seeing this sort of like, Oh, I don't know if anti-capitalist is the right word phrase, but there is certainly a criticism of the what was then the 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 way capitalism was working in that society that I think that I was reading I'm like I'm looking at how that extends to to now because he's he's railing against materialism. Yeah. And such. And um, and he has those like the necessities. He has like the four necessities of life and and these things. Um, What did you make of that? And let's get to that view of poverty. What you know, what was his view of poverty and and what he had to say about these things? I mean, and also, is he writing from a place of privilege here? I mean, that's another question to ask. So it's kind of a compound question, but. Materialism, poverty, and privilege. I think he is writing from a place of privilege for sure. So I'll just start off that way um, because he is choosing to uh, take a temporary vow of poverty yes. for two years. And then he goes over to uh, the Irish people's houses mm-hmm. and has a lot of judgment against them. And they're living, they're living that like they are forced to live that way. And it's almost, I don't know if you can technically use this phrase, um, but I I shall use it anyways. It felt like he was um, attempting some uplift, uplift suasion, you know, from from X Kendi. The idea that you can like pull yourself up from your boots because he's like instructing the Irish people, the family, like you can get out of this. And I'm like, sometimes you just can't because of circumstances, because of the system is against you. And so I think that it's naive. And he also had like a judgment against that. 
Um, so I think that's kind of my, my, my simple answer, but yeah, I think he looked down on people and maybe not necessarily that they were lazy, but that they should be working harder. And if they did work harder, that they could pull themselves out of the situation that they were yeah, in. Yeah. He also had this fixation on like with uh, John field. That's the name of the, um, the Irish farmer. Yeah. He had this fixation of the fact that field worked harder than he did and yet was worse off. And yeah. he couldn't see the why in that. And, and, and in the, in the backgrounder, I gave you, the guy gave us what was written about the way society had been growing at the time. And that's around a time when subsistence farming was evolving to more of a, you know, um, more being part of the, the larger economy. So you're not just supplying, um, you're not just supplying your home or maybe even on a very, very small local level, other people in your area with vegetables or maybe even, you know, some other animal meat or things. You are now growing crops that get exported. Now it might not be across the ocean. It's, you know, to another part of the state or even down to another part of the country, but that's a significant shift economically and i don't know if thoro is seeing that sometimes i think or he sees it and he just thinks it's um i don't know he he i get what he means by the fact that this is driving us into a, a way of life or a, or a way of viewing life that is uh, for in simplest forms not sustainable and probably going to kill us um <laughs> But at the same time, I don't think he grasps the reality of people's situations. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the, the, the whole, the, well, that's the old, what's, that's the old chestnut for pull, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which, right, which is right. like, I think if you actually look at the literal meaning or translation of that phrase, so to speak, is literally impossible. Like you cannot physically do that. And I think that's the, you know, the irony in this, in this statement and everything, but yeah, he is. Although I will say his railing against the need to have things and things that are excessive, I get. Mm-hmm. And because he talks, he even brings up like, you know, we look at the latest, he, in, in, to paraphrase, he does give something about like the latest pa- uh, fashions from Paris and things like that. And even in 1845, the a human, but also the American need or want for the materialist goods to impress others or, or just to have and own things. Um, existed. And I was actually surprised by that. I, maybe because I only think of that in a post World War II sense, mm. the, the sort of excesses of the late 20th century, or not even the excesses. Well, there are certainly excesses, especially in my lifetime of, of people. The accessibility, the accessible wealth, or the accessible um, lifestyle that the late 20th century offered. I would have never thought that somebody would be saying similar things about society in the mid 19th century. 
What about you? Did you agree with him on the materialism thing? Was there something else that you had in mind? Oh, no. I Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I think you were talking about, you know, is it anti-capitalist? Uh, and no, I don't think so. I think it is kind of extravagant. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we're in it now, too, where just people buy, you know, so many things and um, throw away oh, so God, many yeah. things, which makes me nervous for Mother Nature. Um, plastic bags. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that's certainly something that, I mean, I'm looking around my room now and I see my pop figs. I see all the (laughs) books that I have. But, you know, I've in the past decade, you know, have been cutting down, especially on books. You know, I try to use the library as much as possible. And it's a big conversation. I mean, the fact that you really can't take it with you. So, like, once you die, you know, where is the stuff going? You're not taking it with you. Um, And getting getting down to, to bare minimum. And I think that also goes with social media as well. I know that's not necessarily materialistic, but people are so attached to it that it almost becomes this physical thing. And so I am at, you know, if he were alive, I mean, might, maybe he's twisting, twisting and turning in his grave. But if he were alive today, I think that this would look very similar, but it'd be like, Oh, fasting from technology, you know, and, and staying away from the internet and all that stuff for, two years uh and and see what would happen but yeah i I definitely get that now i don't see um the fields did he didn't look around and see that they had unnecessary things did he i don't i don't recall that either to be honest with you um yeah and i'm looking at at the um he just he has this now i mean because he has certain points he like he kind of um complains that and I, uh, I apologize. The question I asked for number C and never finished <laughs> typing in the question. Um, I think he's like talking about how like our life is further away by looking at certain details, and and he's trying to get this point across in the second uh, chapter where I lived and what I live for um, about like that we are so attached to the purpose that we seem to have in our society that we miss a lot of the things around us that this, cause he talks about, he's like, simplify, simplify. And, um, yeah, he is frustrated with technology. Um, in his case, the technology was, you know, nascent versions of what we have now, but I agree with you. I think that some of the excesses in our society can be seen in, in social media, especially there's like, I was talking to my wife about this. The weird fakeness of people's appearances in like your Instagram reels or your TikToks and things like that, where like you can, you know, because you can, you can, you know, you can adjust and filter and everything, but there's also this sort of like the lips, the eyes, the just the way people sort of build their appearance in a social media and a physical way. And, and, and Thor doesn't really talk about physical appearance very much in this, um, in this book. He, he keeps it mainly to like with humans, like economic things and stuff like that. But even then yeah. there's the way that the social medias mess with our body appearance. Um, our, our, what we think about our, our appearances and really just kind of amp up what's been there for, especially for women and girls for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, like dysmorphia and things like that. But then there's also like the, 
the showing off of excess of what we have. You know, right. and we're both in collectors' realms too, so we see a lot of people posting their their comic buys and things like that, or their collections of things. And I'm looking at my three bookshelves of full of books, and I'm like, it's, they're overflowing. And, and I'm I'm in my wife's office now, so I'm seeing all of her pops and things. Well, actually, things I bought for her, <laughs> you know, the various Wonder Woman prints and things like that so um which are fun and if you go downstairs and then we're looking at my stuff it's all of the graphic novels and all these things so like we have excess of collection and stuff we're in there but at the same Mm -hmm. time i get it I, i get what what he wants us to do um i think he i think he is He's doing it to an extreme. And you're right. He's doing this, like he has the privilege of doing this, taking a vow of poverty. The irony is that if you take a vow of poverty as a monk, you're really, the life that you're supposed to lead is supposed to be relatively non-judgmental of other people. Right. Like you're essentially turning over your entire life in service to God in a way that is more, well, no pun intended, cloistered than (laughs) than, say, um, somebody who simply worships on a regular basis, you know, Um, thorough kind of going into this, um, doing it in the name of really as an experiment in the name of transcendental philosophy and stuff, there's a monk like quality to it or ascetic, I believe is the, is the root word according to my ninth grade students, um, roots, this vocabulary unit lately, there's an ascetic aspect to it. But with him, there are times where I'm like, you can leave at any point you want. And so it, it, it almost almost comes off as one of those trust fund kids who decides to write about the time that they spent working a minimum wage job for a college essay, right? Yeah. You know, it kind of comes off. Or, 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 or actually, the modern day Walden is Into the Wild by mm. John Krakauer because Chris McCandless did exactly this. Donated all his trust fund to Oxfam, went off into the woods, died in the woods. But reading it, it's fascinating. He's a fascinating character, but the entire time I think you're a trust fund baby. You know? And had you survived, would you have keep kept living this life or would you have gone into whatever field, finance, whatever it was? You know, and I won. That's the kind of the same thing with Thorno. Like he he does kind of hold. He didn't his he didn't live very long after this, but you know, and he he essentially it's not like he went to live in a mansion or anything. He lived in his parents' house at the end of his day. He was paying rent at his parents' house <laughs> and such. So he wasn't ostentatiously successful, but there was a certain level of comfort that he left and returned to, whereas John Field struggled. Yeah. Yep. So uh, yeah, knowing that there's like an endpoint to what you're doing, I think is is very mm-hmm. different, um, because the you know the struggles you could kind of leave at any time, but he 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 seemed like he was very intent though on doing things as thoroughly as possible, 
So that's potentially a difference. It's interesting you said that he went to the extreme. I I don't know that I necessarily would say that. Hmm. Why do you feel like he went to the extreme? I, I I've maybe not uh, now. Now I'm kind of walking it back. Oh, hold on to no, hold on right. to your opinion. I just, I think, <laughs> it's I just good think when we disagree it just, sometimes. It seems like he. I think there is an even more extreme than what he did. Had he gone all the way further into the woods, like without complete human contact, right? That would be yep. a real extreme. I think this is more. I think because I said extreme because it got enough attention from people and it's held up as this sort of like I idealized sort of experiment in simple living that whereas you have if you've got Henry David Thoreau on one end and like Cornelius Vanderbilt building like Biltmore, I think he built Biltmore, Biltmore does mm-hmm. the builds. And, you know, or like people who made up like Rhode Island, et cetera. All the mansions and all the Gatsby's and those types on the other. I think most people are in the middle and it makes you wonder, does he do this to this extent to prove, to make a point? And if he didn't do it to the extent that he did, would we even see the point? Hmm. Like, if I just cut out meat, okay, would would we be reading this 150 years, 170, almost 180 years later? Would we still be reading this if he had not gone to the extent that he did in this experiment? And I wonder what would have happened had he gone longer. Would he have been able to to do it? Yeah, that would have been interesting. You know? Because two years isn't too no. long. Because you kind of take a year to get settled. And then that second year, I was like, okay, everything's, I know it, what's going on by yeah. now. And then he leaves. Yeah. So it's like he just kind of gets got started with what he was planning yeah, on Yeah, when doing. you really think about it, he, 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 enters, he enters the woods on July 4th, 1845, and comes out in 1847. So between July, like when you enter the woods in July, there, there's a little bit of maybe he's setting himself up and everything. And really, if you think about it, the only timetable you're under for this project is to really just make your make it so that you are going to be able to survive the winter, right? Like, because mm-hmm. he talks about plastering and chimneying the house and everything, and 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 bringing in warmth. Um, and he he holds office for as long as he can because it is means more labor, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd say that that's like one of your primary concerns is being. I need to be prepared for winter because winters are harsh in New England. Right. And and that does show determination to fit, to take the project to its fullest because I think he very well knows that if, if winter is getting unbearable to the point where I cannot survive this, I can just go back to my parents' house in Concord. Right? It's not like his Irish neighbor who has to survive the winter because he has to survive the winter. You know? He mm-hmm. can't leave. But I do think that it would be fascinating if this were five years, you know, Yeah. you get into that third or fourth year and it's like, when does the fascination with nature become monotonous? Like when does nature become monotonous? When does all of this life, those simple life become monotonous? And that's a good question. To ask. I would hope 
Yeah, well, I would hope that this would. Well, first of all, I, you know, thinking about the, the this two year cycle and kind of how we just started, kind of feels like administrative changes or educational changes, where it usually takes a couple years for the effects to actually be felt, you know, in a mm-hmm. school, whatever it may be. Um, so it kind of feels like that, just to make it, I guess, more of a, a real world modern example. But I would hope that. Uh, if he is who he says he is and he kind of follows that transcendental belief system that he would not ever take for granted his surroundings. And it's interesting because I, you know, recently visited my friend Harry and he is 1.5 miles from a Ooh. beach. Like I, so yeah, I, on days I, I'll like run down to the beach and run back. And, um, I, you know, if I lived there, I would go to the beach as much as I could. Uh, just like the beauty, just walking in the calmness of it, even if there are waves, but, and the beauty of it. And he's just like, you know, it's just a beach. And I'm like, I just don't know how you, like I was flabbergasted. I just didn't understand how you could live there. And kind of, yeah, take it for granted, like, oh, it, you know, it's there. It's, but he's not much of a beach person. But then I went home and I asked his mom, I was like, do you ever take the beach for granted? She said, never. Because she's, because she's got a Boston accent. And so that's, that's what I feel like. If he is really, I think, true to his word, um, and is who we hope and, and think that he is, I don't think that it would ever, wear off. Mm. I think he would always find some something new, some nuance in his surroundings. Um and then yeah, he he only did two maybe three seasons. I mean, I guess if summer was technically where he yeah. started and he had winter and spring, so he didn't get to talk about fall. No, he does talk about there are other he does he, talk about yeah, autumn and yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely more that he could he could mm-hmm. discuss. Um, so I, I think there's still more there. I, I think his self-awareness or at least the awareness that brings the transcendentalist brings with it does inform that ability to really take it in and, and then not take your environment for granted because that's part of its whole thing is that we do that too much. Um, it's funny cause I grew up near the beach. Um, and uh, you had now I was, you know, the Long Island has a bay and then there's Fire Island, which is the Atlantic beaches and stuff. So when I went to college and I met people who were from like New Jersey and Pennsylvania, they were like, oh, we went for beach week. I was like, which beach week? And they were like, yeah, we went, we stayed at the beach in Ocean City or Ocean Beach or the Jersey Shore or whatever for a week. And you know, blah, blah, blah. They're like, didn't you do that? And I'm like, no, the beach is like a $7 ferry ride. <laughs> like, I'm like, we go to the beach, like, that. that's what you do on the weekends in the summer. I worked at the beach, right? So yeah. there, I could see both Harry and his mom's point of view, because there were times where I totally took the beach for granted um, that it was yeah. there. And you're dealing with, what, tourists? Um, Where this is more like a... You have to live there and have a special pass to get on that the beach, one, so it's the, less The one beach I went to, you, know, you would pay the fare. You could have a residential permit that would give you a discounted price. But the beaches that I tend to went, go to, which are part of the National Seashore um, and a local bunch, tended to have more locals than everything. If you were going to Cherry Grove or the Fire Island Pines – those are the two biggest gay communities on Fire Island. So they, that's where you would get the city folk. Like, okay. You ever hear um, somebody from the LGBTQI community 
talk about Fire Island, they have gone through my town. Because that's where the the ferries for Fire Island leave from my hometown. They leave about two blocks or three blocks over from my parents' house. So my friends of mine from high school worked at the Fire Island Pines at the the, uh, grocery store and stuff like that. One of my best friends worked at the Pines Pantry for years. Um, so, so, you know, uh, so I, I know of how like it's touristy as well, but anyway, that's beside the point, but yeah, the, inf- no, I just wondered if that affected your enjoyment. Not as it. much as I see if I had lived out in like the Hamptons or something like that, where you get a lot more people or, or if I had lived in like the outer banks, you know, um, I, Long Island is as much as a tourist destination as like say the outer banks of the Jersey shore, or ocean city, Maryland or something, or Rehoboth. So, um, but no, yeah, the, the environment, um, cause this is kind of an environmental book. That's one of the things it, it, it inspired a number of people. John Muir is one of the people who is cited and, and others. And it's kind of an early environmentalist work. Um, mm. it's kind of jumping down to Rachel. Yeah, Rachel Carson later on, um, yeah, because I was trying to figure out if he had judgment against. Did you perceive any? Sorry, Go ahead. No, I'm taking control. Uh, did you perceive any judgment against the people who were? I don't think maybe there was some logging going on, but also the ice takers. He seemed really fascinated by the ice takers, um, and and how because their whole thing was like carving up the ice and taking it and then shipping it out to like the Carolinas where it was obviously warmer, everything. And this is a practice that obviously and India too, I wasn't think it? So too? yeah. Yeah. Which is not just to like, think about, they... but they were even saying like how much they lose. So they'll still have, that's why they get so much because they know that they're going yeah, to lose a lot of it. Um, well, what's interesting is that, you know, this is, this is something that's completely out of practice now because we have f- freezers and electricity, um, but back in the day, right. the, the, yeah. there are still um, people who refer to it as a fridge as the icebox. And, um, you know, sometimes you eat the plums that were in the icebox that you knew she was saving for breakfast, but you couldn't help yourself. So forgive me. They were so sweet, and so cold. Um, but the icebox was there literally a box of ice and, and, a, and a storage compartment. And. Um, yeah, he finds that fascinating and, and the colors that he sees in the ice and stuff like that, um, coming out of the, coming out of the pond. Um, cause he's, cause the pond freezes over completely. That's how he's able to just kind of try to plumb the depths to figure out how, how deep it is and things like that. And I see this works value as an environmentalist book because of everything he observes about nature and because of the fact that he is, wary of the changing technologies such as the real, he spends a lot of time talking about the railroad and for a good reason, the railroad, this was the rise of, of the railroad in the United States. And it does the railroad fundamentally changes a lot of things about our culture. It gets in there that he has these things that are right in line with what we associate with American virtues and values. And then he has other things in his philosophy that seem to run counter to what we typically describe as virtues and values in our American culture. So like, for instance, he, um, civil disobedience, the other essay and what he talks about government. And he's very much a person who just like, he, I, I got the sense that he, he was a person who did not want the government interfering more than it had to. 
And yet he's also like frustrated by what is essentially the Protestant work ethic, you know, which is like the, the idea of hard work and being valued as a virtue is a huge part of our country and its philosophy. No matter what you think of it, there are a lot of people in our country and a lot of things that we allow ourselves as a culture to believe is that the value of hard work is like a huge one. And he argues that too much work can lead to a kind of self-imposed slavery and to a life of quiet desperation. So again, this kind of goes back to our anti-capitalist thing. Like, does he, is he right? Is he like, what does he, what does he mean? You know, like what's he getting at here? Does he, does he really think that we can turn that off? Or is, is, is it a little more nuanced than that? Turn off. Yeah. Work turn ethic? off this idea or, or just the idea that the holding up of hard work is like the virtue things. Like, are we driving ourselves crazy trying to fulfill something that is, that is ultimately um, impossible to fulfill? It's interesting. Well, Tom, I think I would consider that you and I have a similar work ethic. Um, obviously you're in a different sort of structure than I am at mm. school and I don't know how you relate to your administration and you know, how much work are you going to do? Will you go outside your billable hours, et cetera? Um, and then I think of my time at Michael's and everything. And so I try to listen, I'm not getting paid a lot at Michael's. It's $12 mm. an hour. And, uh, but it's still a job and I feel like I should be doing my job. And unfortunately, when I see people not doing their job, like hovering in the aisles, looking at their phone, um, I get really frustrated at this because <laughs> I'm just like, what's going on here? And perhaps it's just like, meh, it's Michael's. Like, I don't care about it. So, and, and I work hard at school and like I put in good effort. Now my effort at uh my the high school that I sub at has dropped a little bit if only because I realized that um number one my standards were like too high. Um so after, you know, some poor student interactions I was like, yep, I can't do that. Yeah, I can't do that. Um and also like teachers aren't weren't at the same standard. And also that uh you get rewarded with more work. Oh uh, yeah. Um so, and so that yeah. was like ooh, Oh, I'd rather not do that. Um, but I don't know any other way to live necessarily. I don't know where this work ethic came from. My brother also has this work ethic. But if I didn't, like I, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, I don't think that I would consider myself like chained, chained mm -hmm. to something. Um, I think I still take time out, but without the work ethic that I have and hard work, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be in the program that I am nearly completed, um, pretty good with Latin, you know, a, a good reader. Like I wouldn't have a lot of these qualities that I think that I have. So I'm not exactly sure. And, you know, I look at Thoreau and what he's doing and I mean, he's not, laying about i think he works until like the afternoon and takes his second 
bath in the yeah. pond and then comes back and hangs out. But he's still working from whenever he wakes up, which might be sun up to 3 p.m. Um, now, again, we're looking at this pro- privileged guy who I guess, yeah, he's living with his parents, as you said. So who knows what his I guess maybe you said what his profession is. So maybe it's like just a privileged look at like heart. But does this not contradict himself or contradict what he's saying about the fields? Because isn't hard work the only way they're going to, according to him, get themselves out of poverty? So I don't know. You're either going to work hard or you're not going to work hard. It's either going to help you or it's not going to help you. Yeah. You know, I wonder that he does seem to have criticisms of this idea that we need to work hard and that because that's what we're going to want to get. And his criticism of the fields also implies that I don't know if the phrase, the American dream existed in 1845, but field seems to be chasing that. And if hard work is the way to get there, then Thoreau is kind of pointing out that that's a fool's errand. And, and the American dream being being unattainable is a common theme in American literature. You know, there are a lot of different works written about how the American dream is a, is a, the mirage and such. This is where like, there are things that I agree with. Agree. Yeah. That I agree with because, okay. and I do work hard, you know, at my job and stuff, but there are, and I, you know, I forget along with my, um, with my, my bosses, uh, you know, uh, the way I can. And, and, you know, I do work to, to make sure that I'm doing the best job as possible, but then there are things where I, yes, I will do this work and I will hard, but I will complain every second. <laughs> about no because 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 I am the type again your your point about how like you discovered that when I work hard and I do well I get rewarded with more work and that's the old joke right the reward for work is more work and you do start to wonder like why am I doing this especially you know especially in like systems where uh, hard work does not seem to lead to recognition or promotion and um, you know, male mediocrity and incompetence is rewarded with promotion to middle management. You know, like these sorts of things that exist. And I think he's kind of commenting on that a little bit as well, that there is like we we trap ourselves into this idea to think that um, it's almost like a fulfillment fantasy, like. Like, if I keep working, I'll eventually achieve this. I'll get there. I'm waiting for this point, And then after this point, I will be okay. It's kind of like, it's kind of like retirement and how, what retirement has come to mean. Where like, you do get sometimes still locked in to having to save for this and thinking about this and thinking about this, because you can only work for so many years before you either are forced into retirement or you fall apart. And that can be very suffocating. That quiet desperation I do identify with because, and I'm not saying like, Oh, I'm trapped in a life of hell, you know, but I, I feel you feel that you are on a treadmill when you are working in the life of work and, that is very, very real. 
And I know I speak from a place of privilege because I live very comfortably. You know, it, it depends on your circumstances. I think I agree with you from earlier on we were saying was how he's so condescending toward the fields and kind of condescending to those in poverty, which is odd considering that his whole thing about like, you know, you work so hard to get into this quiet desperation speaks to what we were seeing with like my generation, your generation and, and Gen Z to a certain extent dealing with debt, student loans, trying to make enough money to afford their cost of living you know, all of these things that are affecting us on a fundamental level economically as individuals, I think he is making a point about, like, this is what this brings. And I, I, I hear the frustration in that because then he also is like, he's like, simplify, man, simplify, which he totally sounds like some 60s hippie when he says simplify, simplify. But he's, he's that because he's wary of the world that is encroaching which is, this is the thing. It's like, there's contradictions in here. Am I off base by saying he like contradicts himself? And there's like a lot of ironing what he says, considering the way he acts towards certain people. No, I think, no, I think that he is contradicting himself in certain areas. Yeah, for sure. Is it a fool's errand? Simplify, simplify, man. Like, you know, you don't need the technology. You don't need the stuff. I don't think so. You know, as someone who is currently in a low income bracket, um, not exaggerating at all. That's honestly how I'm living currently. Um, it's it's possible. Um, obviously, it's because of necessity that I had to, you know, really cut back. It's just like just need to make enough for mm -hmm. rent, you know, um, and you just worry about, you know, so every every purchase. And I think this was true even you know, when I w had financial stability, um, that I kind of look at something and I think to myself, do I really need this? Um, and honestly, you don't, you know, besides food and like general clothing, you really don't need that much. And I try to, on the weekends, specifically on Sundays, um, fast from technology. So usually, unless I have some sort of appointment or I'm tutoring my Latin mm -hmm. student, um, keep my phone off. And it's like, it's very freeing to, to be away from that or be away from the computer. So I don't think it's a fool's errand. I think that it's possible for anybody. I get concerned. Even today I was subbing for a class and someone was saying that his, he said his day's average on TikTok was God. 10 hours. I don't know if that's true or, well, even if I look at it expanded, was it the average for the whole week? But that seems too, not a lot. Uh, if, if it was 10 hours for seven days. So it might have been. And I just think like, man, whoo, that's it's so much. And I and these kids that like go to the bathroom and immediately whip, whip out their phone, like the connection is just it's so much. And it's possible to separate. Mm -hmm. And I would love everyone to to fast from technology just because I think we are too tied to it and and i have concerns um it's it might be a fool's errand in terms of like if thoreau were to speak to today's youth like they would totally ignore mm -hmm. him but i definitely think that it's possible i don't i don't think that he's saying stuff that is impossible now yeah the dopamine hit these kids get from tiktok it's it's a high and they keep chasing the high it's like you're a freaking zombie for 30 minutes and you're flipping, and I watch these. Sometimes I see them when they're on their downtime or whatever, 
and it's just flip, 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 flip. Like it's scary. And I think he'd like lose his mind <laughs> if he came across today's kids with these yeah. things. He probably could not have predicted that. You know, the entertainment and technology and the intertwining of the two. Um, yeah. He does get a little pretentious where he talked. You know, I, I, we talked about the Iliad and, and his love of Greek and classical, but he's looking down and poo-pooing the the kind of literature for the masses and stuff. And that's where I think he's a little pretentious. It's like, come on. Yeah. I mean, for me, because I can totally appreciate what he's saying about the classics, there's so many classics references throughout, which my Norton kept footnoting. And I'm like, I don't need that footnote. I know exactly <laughs> what he's talking about. Um, and, and yeah, I can definitely appreciate that, but he does, he does snub his nose at people who aren't reading or aren't intellectual, even though that one guy who is very, um, he, was yeah, it the Canadian the who like yeah. can't read, but he also has like this intelligence that he looks, um, well upon. And yeah, I mean, I don't even know what that would be at the time. I mean, would he consider Charles Dickens? Something like that, that, you know, for the quote unquote yeah, masses, maybe. I don't know what the, I don't know what his, but I feel like reading is yeah. reading. Um, obviously, you know, I'm a literature snob. I mean, you might be. So, you know, if someone tells me that, which this is a true story, tells me that their favorite book is Fifty Shades of Grey, this is not necessarily a person that I would, and that's like super, super superficial, but I'm admitting to it, that I would like maybe find commonality in. Um, but I do think that you're able to get something out of literature and at least the reading period, I guess uh, I should say. I, I I have become more tolerant in as I've grown older. Um, I've become less judgy. Uh, maybe it's because I spend so much time around teenagers that I really can't get judgy of what they read because it's like, hey, you're reading something and you're enjoying it. Like, why? Yeah. Yuck, you're sure. dumb. Where does he fall in our modern day political spectrum? Or yeah. Or should we even be asking that question? Let me think about this. Should we even be well, asking I mean, that question? To, uh, I think it's a good thought experience. Yeah, I, I our, experiment. Our, I don't think there's an issue. media tends to do it anyway, and that's why I was asking. Because like anytime you have something like this, we see either social media or regular media, we see somebody trying to throw him into a, if not a political party, then a political philosophy. Anyway, no, let's let's go with philosophy. Conserv- the, the, the philosophical spectrum of conservative to liberal, the left to the right. Because we like to do that in our country. We like to claim people. Yeah. I I think he's straddling the line here because I think with his, if not quite anti-capitalism, leaning towards something like it, I think that's more of a left Mm -hmm. thing. But his anti-poverty and like you need to figure out on your own is very much a right leaning thing. Um, The caring about the environment left. Uh, The abolitionist is a very liberal for the day thing. That's left. Yeah. So I guess with his 
I guess but, if he were to vote, he'd have to look at the, the person's – he would not vote for no. Trump because Trump – if you look – because I had to do this, unfortunately, for a podcast. If you look at all of his stances on things, it's like really anti – like all of that stuff, environment and everything. So he definitely wouldn't vote for him. So I guess even though I think the poverty thing is is pretty big and how he's relating to people um, – and his yeah his general attitude maybe and also his privilege i think he probably is going to have more categories in the left but almost like i want to say in some of them it's way more liberal than others he's center left to left depending on what you're talking about what's interesting though is that some of his views on the government where he uh kind of who's complained about like, you know, when he in the village, he goes into the ends up in jail and stuff like that. And he sounds more libertarian when it comes to what the government should and should not be doing. I don't know if it's a distrust or whatever, but then again, he might not have also liked the poll tax, you know, like why am I paying to vote and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think, it, I think there's a little more, and I think it's a little more nuanced. I think you're seeing, we're seeing the nuance by taking apart the different, issues and placing them on there as opposed to what we tend to do in our culture and say, oh, boom, he's a liberal, you know, like without actually examining it, because again, people love to claim things. What is the intersection with with the spirituality and philosophy of transcendentalism and the religion of Christianity? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know to what extent I'll be able to Answer just because I think you are better skilled at providing the transcendentalism. So it's like we've made two mm. two halves, two halves that have to Where somehow intersect. Where does our Venn diagram overlap, Stella? <laughs> yeah, I yeah I would say if transcendentalism, as you defined it in your synopsis, uh, there's a big focus on nature. Mm-hmm. Correct. I would say that that's big just because, you know, I, I think really starting back in Genesis, uh, being called to tend God's creation. I mean, that was really kind of Adam's and I'll add Eve in as well. Their purpose um, is to, you know, take care of it and everything, which is why, you know, like animal cruelty is very bad. Um, so I can I can see that and, and how you're appreciating God's beauty in creation and and all of that. So I would say that that's the main thing that I could find um, through that. I think that's probably where I guess I'll end. I mean, certainly, you know, on the surface, well, I, yeah, I, I, there are so many biblical references in this work, um, whether they were footnoted or not, or whether he changed things up to be give a pun Mm -hmm. Or not, um, they're kind of all over the place, um, Old Testament and New Testament, and I feel like he he made where he was living very much into a living entity that he was experiencing and speaking to and um, listening to as well. Yeah, the transcendental idea just from the re- from the bio part. Um, essentially, for the transcendentalist, the secret to successful living was to hold oneself above material concerns as much as possible and focus on the spiritual. Um, and there was, and Thoreau, I think, is the one who kind of took it to the communing with nature 
aspect. There's not as much of that. And uh, from what I recall of Emerson, and you have to forgive me, it's been about 25 years. Emerson really did seem like more on that philosophical bent in the abstract as opposed to Thoreau, where this is really put more into practice and there is a, that communing with nature. But I don't see where if you're following the tenets of Christianity that you would have such, such a patronizing view of the poor. But that doesn't come with transcendental. No, I don't think. It? I just think it comes from him. Okay. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah, that's just. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I don't think, and there was some. Well, I don't know. I feel like he also experiences. Is it technically racism too? Like there's. There's yeah. Even though he's an abolitionist, I think there are some stretches. Yeah, I think so as well. But Maybe I'm not, not giving. I'm not giving that a pass. Back, but at the same time. I'm not, I, when I say this, I'm not trying to give it a pass, but I think people, especially in that era, are so complicated that even there are, there are abolitionists who say things or express things that we would still consider on some level racist or xenophobic or something in our time. So yeah. I think we need to, I think we need to have that conversation when we start labeling things. I think we need to do it as a culture overall anyway, but. Uh, unless the person is an out and out like blatant, you know, it's right there in front of you. The more subtle things I think are worth having a conversation with or about. He does not seem to profess a, I don't know if belief is the right word or at least some sort of reverence for a higher power that is personified in a, like a God, the father or an Allah or, or some, or a Jesus or somebody like that. It seems like there is some sort of higher something, but he doesn't, I don't think he clearly defines what that is. So you don't think he might necessarily, he might not be. Well, Christian. I think he was, he was raised, like I said, he was raised Christian. So I think he knows from what I gather, he has a good knowledge of, of it, I don't. I, yeah. I think there's an overlap there, but I think if you're talking about the transcendentalist side of things, the presence of a deity, I think is. I think it's an absence of a deity. It's not atheism, per se. Could you say that again? The presence well, just, of the deity oh, no, is no, an absence was, of. Was, was it? I was stumbling over my own words. When it comes to like the, I was saying that like transcendentalism doesn't seem to have a deity. You know, oh, like, so oh, like okay. there's no presence of a deity. Like it, it's, there's a lot of the same, there's, I, I see a, a through line between, you know, a lot of the things that even I learned as a kid growing up Lutheran and I see some of the tenets in there and I'm like, you know, I think, I think even people would see some of the things he talks about and be like, yeah, I, I agree with this, but there's no, there's no God, the father to worship when it comes to transcendentalism. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Are you worshiping nature then? You think? Yeah, but does nature take the place of a deity, or is it just you're just, just existing, existing, appreciating, and, and caring for it? Like I think he worships it in the sense of appreciation and love for it, and I certainly think that there is that in our in worship of of God or Christ or whoever. Mm-hmm. But he's not. But when you go to church and you ask forgiveness, you pray over those who are sick, or you follow teachings of 
Jesus or St. Paul or Moses or whoever, you know, whoever's, whoever the, the passage is about. I don't see that part of it in the philosophy. You're following the teachings of the philosophy, but I don't see the asking for forgiveness or absolution of sin and that side of it in this book. No, I, I don't think we get into religious mm-hmm. tenets. And I think there's even a, um, you know, there's a bit of a criticism about people who only read the Bible. Mm-hmm. I think he kind of stumps his nose at them and, and says that they also need to read other religious texts, mm-hmm. perhaps just for education or, or comparison. So he might not yet be beholden to anything. I think there is an overlap, but yeah, I think you're right. Maybe there's an absence of something. So I don't know. I guess I'd have to talk to an atheist about like, is there anything that's kind of like a center point or is it just like everything's kind of equal? Because that's not something I'm aware of. Yeah, um, and I actually have to ask the two. I do agree with that idea that you should read the philosophy. Other text, Other text. You know, even, even on like a, a philosophical economic level as well. You know, I think the most staunch capitalist should understand what's in the Communist Manifesto. You should know the philosophy of what you purport to oppose. But right. even then, like, I don't think maybe I'm off. You as you as somebody who is who is devout as a Christian can correct me. I don't think if you're truly Christian that you find yourself diametrically opposed to any sort of other religion, maybe aside from like Satanism, you know, like I don't think, or maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think if you're Christian that you really should look at a Muslim and say you were my enemy or my opponent. No. You know, no. well, I mean, I'm though people do. I just, I don't think that's, um, to but, me, that's not yeah. right. That's not practicing Christianity the way you're, the way you should. Or, yeah. Jew, or or somebody who's Jewish or somebody who's Hindu or something. Yeah, it should be a positive mm. thing. When people are using deficit language, which is something I learned in education school, <laughs> uh, that's the issue. That's the issue. Yeah. yeah. So I'm actually curious as to what, you know, I don't know if he ever read Marx. I wonder what Thoreau would think of Marx. So I keep thinking about this experiment. I keep thinking about the book Walden. I think about how it would come off if he did it now and it got, he put the book out and it got reported on there. People who do stuff like this and they, they write books about it. I wonder if it's even possible to do this today. Like, could you do this? Do you think Thoreau would have wanted us to do this today? Um, well, I feel like this connects back to your fool's errand Mm. question. So I would say, that he, oh my gosh, I mean, looking at the state of our world, I, I think that, yes. However, I don't know how well it would be received. I think he would have to tone it down a bit. He would have to kind of have levels of accessibility. Yeah. Uh, whereas, like, if you're really wanting to get, like, here's the deep dive. If you really want to get in, here's, like, surface level stuff. And I think about this um, book that was passed around at my, or made the rounds, I'll say, at the school that I worked at called the Benedictine option, I think it was called. And it was this call to Christians that we should remove. I'm going to really like cut it down, but remove ourselves from society and be our own little people, 
you know, our little group and everything. Um, just cut off society and live outside of the world. And that would be the, the best and safest bet for us to, you know, survive. And so many people, um, took, well, I shouldn't say many, but the people in my circle did not approve of this idea. <laughs> Because there are a lot of uh, issues with that sort of idea. So I see a similar thing of, you know, someone saying that remove yourself from society and technology mm-hmm. like that's Go off that the very grid, extreme. So yeah. And I wonder, like, oh, my gosh, is this like this sounds like a cult leader. Mm-hmm. Right. This sounds like um, who was uh, isn't there someone who like walked himself and his family in a cabin? And was like completely I, well. Actually, if we think about it, um, Sarah Westover. That was certainly one of those things. I can't remember what are those people called. Do they have a name? Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Who's like the anti-government? Yeah. Stay away. They've got guns in case well, anyone comes. Like the British Davidians. They they yeah, were kind of yeah. that. Um, uh, survivalists, doomsday yeah. preppers. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. Like the Northwest is full of them. Uh, and then there's yeah. all, there's extreme offshoots of Mormonism that um, um, like LDS, uh, like extreme LDS where they're, you know, is a sort of compound thing. So I think it's possible, but I think um, he would have to mm-hmm. be careful on how it was presented. I think if he got Oprah on his side, this could be something that would be pushed forward very well. Like, can't you imagine it being an Oprah book club uh, pick? And then he comes on the show and they have a conversation about what it's like. And then it kind of blows up. And maybe then we get news clippings about people mm. casting off the, their their possessions and going out into the wild. So and I could see it. it but it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian uh, nation, yeah. is a 2017 book by writer and conservative commentator Rod Dreher on Christianity and Western mm-hmm. culture. Drawing very loosely are the writings of early Christian monk Benedict of Nursia and the philosophy of Al- Alas- Alasdair MacIntyre. Dürer argues for the formation of various Virtuous Christian communities in response to increasingly secular culture. Book produced discussion, debate in Christian and secular circles over the issues of cultural engagement and direction of Christian communities. Yeah, there's that sounds very extreme. It's almost like almost Duggar level, <laughs> that sort of I stuff. I mean, to give you an example of like his connections and how extreme he did tie birth control. He said the, with the advent of birth control, basically it led the way or paved the way to transgenderism. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, I mean, <laughs> to see, to, to, to thread that together, but that gives you an idea of just like what you're reading. I did read it, mm. um, but yeah. And then you I read its agree. sequel, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, so, wah, wah. Uh, yeah, I. you know, the funny thing is, is like, I, I see... Well, why can't I picture somebody doing this and like Instagramming it the entire time, not getting the irony? <laughs> like, yeah, I know. Seriously, it's day one yeah. here in the wilderness. And then I only and have then, water. Like, Ten days in the apology video of like, I'm so sorry, you guys. I didn't think that like, that's because people started criticizing them for their privilege. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, Twitter's. 
Twitter would have exploded had he been doing this in modern day of like this, some sort of like, you know, you're this, you're being this, this is the criticism, you know, here's a threat of all the things that that you're doing wrong and all that. God, I hate our society. Um, (laughs) I don't really, I don't like totally hate it. It just, it tires me out. Um, If I didn't have like you and a bunch of other people as friends, I'd probably quit like most of the social media. Um, uh, yeah, so I think it's. I mean, although I do think it's possible to do this, and I think it's possible to do it in a way that does not come off as um, really culty. On the left hand side, there's yeah. a there's a great documentary I read. I think I saw it on Amazon or something about a commune that existed in the '60s into the like early to mid '80s called the Farm. It was out on Tennessee. It was founded by a bunch of hippies from San Francisco, and it kind of collapsed in on itself as as time went on because they were not sustainable as far as they're um, economically sustainable, um, even though some of the things, you know, they talked about, they kind of go into this whole like communal living and stuff like that. So it's more of the hippie dream. And I think there's some ties to that too, through this book as well. And I'd, I'd be interested to look at like some of the, some of the works that or some of the lifestyles, that people who were of the hippie part of the boomer generation what they would think about what he does here and, and are they taking from this book as well? Cause I, I do wonder who this book is for and whether or not it's relevant anymore. I see some relevance in some of the things he does talk about, especially the simplicity We're striving for some sort of simplicity is it, it's almost like he's setting up the simplicity of the life he had as some sort of platonic ideal, you know, um, and you can't get the platonic ideal. That's the whole point, right? Like, the ideal is there. You can never achieve it, but you can try to come as close as possible. And I, and I want, and I think that's what he's trying to set up for us in a sense. Um, that if I go back to like the allegory of the cave, he's trying to kind of take us out of the cave because, you know, we're not seeing the things clearly. And if we can take that moment and come away from our trappings, we can see things a little bit more clearly and perhaps that will help us find, the right direction in our lives, no matter what that direction is. Or maybe I'm putting words into his mouth. What do you think? Could you repeat I was question? just asking like, you know, who is this for? Does this, does this have relevance these oh, days? And, and then I mentioned that like, you know, I, I feel like he's setting up a platonic ideal for. Yeah. Um, who is it for? I think it's for Henry. I think so, too. Quite honestly, I I think, and to a certain extent, a lot of, you know, things that we do should be for us, you know, for for ourselves Mm -hmm. first. Because if we don't get enjoyment out of it or feel like it's worthwhile, then why would we put it out there? You know, like I think about podcasting. You know, I think that this is for us as much as it is, perhaps more, quite honestly, because, you know, I get to read books and I get to talk about them yeah. with my friend. So I feel like it's like 80 to 90 percent, you know, for me and like 10 to 20 for other people. So I honestly think, you know, he went out there is for him. He wrote it down. Um Yeah. So I think priority would be that. I mean, he does make a cheeky mention to his first novel Mm -hmm. failing 
because he called it something. It was a reference. I'm not going to be able to remember what that reference was. But he's like, I had a blank blank. And then there's a footnote of like, these are referring to his first novel. Um, but yeah, I think it could be for anyone that he's kind of having lessons about. So it could be about poor people. Um, it could be about people who are kind of bogged down in quote unquote modern day. Um, or for, I should say, you know, trying to get lessons out of it. Um, or people, you know, wanting to know more about nature if there were naturalists or nation, uh, I don't even know. What Environmentalists. The, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, environmentalists at that time. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess primarily those would be. And if he's making criticisms about literature, then he might also um, be f- writing for mm-hmm. the elite. Yeah, which is interesting because just bring up civil disobedience again really briefly. That is you told me no, you don't. But I just was—I I did read it <laughs> for completion's sake because I wanted to be able to say that I read the whole book. <laughs> just check it off. That appeals to the angry young man in a lot of ways, or the angry young person. But you know, just—I got Billy Joel on my mind. So, uh, the angry young oh. person—you know—it really does in a in a big way. It's it's my my colleague Lori Reeser, who's next to me, she says he gets she's like he gets the angry teenage boy voice down really, really well. <laughs> Just jokingly. This book though, like I'm seeing the appeal of what he did more and more. Like I said, I disagree with a lot of what he was saying, you know, in there and there's a whole like again, and I also think he's a bit pompous and everything we've said, but when you're when you're in the thick of the, the rat race, as we call it, you read this and, and you see. I see the appeal, and I, I tend to agree with it more. I see that there's a there is a wish fulfillment aspect to this. That like, could you do this? Could you find that simpler life that doesn't have you beholden to everything that is in this sort of like capitalist treadmill and things like that? It's hard to break some of those chains too. Oh, this is a bad metaphor. It is hard well, to. Well, you have to afford. Yeah, rent, well, that's the know? thing. It, it's, uh, it's, like, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to. It's hard to break yourself away from everything. I think it's a. Uh, it's a good thing to revisit every once in a while too. So I guess I'll just follow up with our last question, which is: Is it require reading? I'd say yes, but I think it d- depends on when. Like reading as a, I just don't know that this is. Maybe it could be high school, but I would have it advanced, and I think it would be advanced yeah. junior seniors, um, and then Definitely college, possible. honestly. But but I think you know segments of this would be great just to give to students about simplicity of life, and um, yeah, maybe taking some fast fasts from technology and and not worry necessarily about all these material material things. Yeah, I think. Um it, it definitely is required reading if you are studying American literature and the origins and like doing the survey course. Like if you do not have this on a survey of American lit course, then why are you having a survey of American lit course? It is a key philosophical work for our culture as well. I think beyond that, I like the idea of giving people excerpts, certain excerpts from it and saying like, think about this and, and discuss it. Yeah. I do wonder, cause you use the C word mm-hmm. culture, um, how this would fly 
in a not American hmm. culture. And the reason why I asked is because I'm in a, a cross cultural education um, course this semester. I made to do a case study. And so I'm interviewing with my former students who um, is a first generation uh, Mexican. Uh, wait, first generation American, but she is Mexican. And she was telling me how like there were certain things about like her appearance that she did not even consider until she mm. came to America. And of course, went to the private school that I talked to her at. But I just wonder, like, would some of these things hit differently? Would would it be easier for other other cultures? That's a good question. That's a really interesting. And I would I would love to see how we could how you could explore that. You know that <laughs> just saying. Yeah, no, I really, I really, other really, people. really curious yeah. as to what people in different parts yeah. of the world like think about this and if they agree with it and where it inter- again that the overlaps, you know, and then the separate, yeah. separate things. So, all right, cool. Yeah. Well, we do have some feedback, um, and oh, Stella oh is going to read the Facebook comments oh, that we have from Robert Ward, our book buddy. Okay. These are all about Band oh, book okay. Club. Yes. Oh, good, good, good. I saw this book at work a lot and frequently considered getting it, but never did. When Tom chose it, it was the perfect excuse I needed to finally read it. That's what's great about the show. You are often a push I need. Oh, sometimes a negative push off a cliff when it's my turn. I enjoyed the book, but I also felt the pacing was off. Like for the introductory character, I felt she was pushed along and it would be more preferable if she enthusiastically wanted to be part of the club or showed more internal debate between joining and being safe. Okay. Stella's intro to the next book was a real curveball. It's like, oh, OK, of course <laughs> uh, it needed to send me down a rabbit hole, though, and he gives uh, something from HorrorTree.com. Mm-hmm. Slash W. Have you clicked that link? Is it safe? It's not safe. Oh, it's taking a moment. It's taking a moment. It's going to happen as we record. It's an article at Horror Tree called W I H M An Exploration of Menstruation in Horror and Dark Fiction. Women in Horror Month. W H I. Women in Horror Month. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't, I have not read the article yet, but I might actually do that because we have talked quite a bit about. And Tom didn't get malware no, from it, so I guess we'll okay. I wonder what my intro was. Was it just um Oh well maybe it was just saying oh yeah, it yeah, has yeah, a release. It has a release. <laughs> no, I think I think I think Whoops. you said like when you were saying By this point, yeah. Carrie, you knew, I think you mentioned the fact that we keep yeah. talking about menstruation on this podcast. Yeah, might as well. Just keep pushing yeah. it, yeah, for sure. All right. We have another piece of feedback and this is actually pretty special. It is from Ryan Estrada, who is one of the authors of Van Book Club. First, he comments on our Facebook post. Thank you for reading Band Book Club. We are honored to be named Required Reading. And um, then he wrote an email and he said, Greetings from South Korea. Hin Suk and I were very excited to hear you talking about Band Book Club on the podcast. We listened while walking by the Soyoung River. Uh, You made a valiant effort trying to pronounce all the names. You even got some of them (laughs) right, or one of them right. Yay. Look at that, Tom. Thank you so much for featuring our book. It is strange to see it getting keep getting banned in the United States, so we are happy to see people still supporting it. I hope you get the chance to check out Occulted, our true story about our friend who used banned books to escape a UFO death cult. 
and our new book about uh, Sook's Band Book Club, No Rules Tonight, coming out next year. If you ever want to talk about book banning and or comics on the show, let me know. I'll be happy to join you on an episode. Ryan Estrada. So we will have to reach out to him and see if we can get him on for a for a chat. Yeah. But yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, oh my God. Absolutely. Yeah, I got an email and I think the subject header was like, OMG Stella. And then I opened it up and I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. One of our one of the authors, which is we had an author on, obviously yes. your friend. Helena Greer. But um, it's it feels different when it's like you haven't reached out to mm. anybody and they wrote to to talk to you and they listened yeah, to your show. That was so, that was really special. Yeah. It felt really good. So yeah, and like him, yeah, I don't know why that book is banned <sighs> in the U.S. I mean, we talked yeah, about it, but yeah, knows? it's so weird to think that people. Well, if they had not gone, if they had actually gone into the no hugging boat. <laughs> oh, the no hugging boat. So anyway, so that's our feedback, and feel free to leave anything on this or or any of the other episodes. Uh, so before we close it out, Stella, what's next month's selection? Yes, well, we're getting into Christmassy feels and winter, and so I was thinking, what could I do? What could I do? I had a couple options, but I've decided to go with the Chronic What Coles of Lazy Narnia. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure that song will appear on the episode. Book one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. So connecting with religion, certainly. It's a Christian it's allegory. Yeah. An allegory to a certain, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, so lighter fare, uh, definitely. That's young adult literature, <laughs> right? So. Or I would consider children's it, yeah. too, to a certain extent. I mean, older children, but yes, well, we can always have a debate about yeah mm-hmm. genre. Yeah, all right. We'll come back uh, next month for that. Until then, of course, feedback, Twitter, Facebook, and all of the other things. Leave us a review. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and take care. And just so you all know, I have borrowed. <laughs> Several books from Tom. Some books have be- I've asked for them, and some he like went. If we hang out, he like brings me some. He's like, I think you'd like this, and all of them have been returned. Currently, I have like five books of his because he lent them to me for the summer course, and uh, they will yes. be returned yes. on election day. So I'm not one of those people that he talks no, about. You're my 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 podcast my podcasting young little sister returns the books. My actual sister. <laughs> Younger sister wah, borrows wah. shit and never returns it. And I'm like, why did I have to buy a copy of World War Z again, Nancy? Why? So, all right. Yeah. Anyway, good night. Yeah. Good night. for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? 
Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode. Thank you.